This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Welcome to season two, everyone. We're kicking things off by talking about momentum, what it is, why it works, and why it's so hard to stick to. Momentum is a big area of research for academics and practitioners. And today's guests are kind of both. They got their PhDs from the University of Chicago and both use momentum themes to manage real-world portfolios. My name's Wes Gray. I'm CEO of Alpha Architect. Hi, I'm Cliff Asnes. I'm managing principal and a co-founder at AQR. Momentum at its core is pretty straightforward. If a security has done well over, say, the last 12 months, you buy it. If it's done poorly, you sell it. Piece of cake. But things get a little trickier once you get into the details. Here's Wes. If you talk to people about momentum in our business, it means so many things to so many different people. If you talk to an academic, momentum means relative strength. Whereas if you talk and you say momentum to a practitioner, a lot of times I think you are talking about trend falling or time series momentum, which is where you got a single security measured over two different time periods. Here's an example of the difference. Trend following, or time series momentum, is about looking at a security by itself. So suppose the S&P 500 is up 10% over the past 12 months. Trend followers would be bullish. And let's say the UK FTSE is also up, but only 5%. Trend followers would also be bullish. But it's different in relative strength momentum. There, you'd still be bullish on the S&P, but this time bearish on the FTSE, because the FTSE underperformed the S&P. Even though they're both up, we'd care about their relative performance. And this is the type of momentum we'll be talking about today. Some factors, like value and quality, have been around for a long time. Benjamin Graham wrote about investing in cheap, high-quality stocks almost a century ago. The momentum factor is a lot newer to the game. Okay, so you were one of the first folks to do an academic treatment of momentum. And I was wondering if you could kind of bring yourself back to the late 80s, early 90s. Um, What got you thinking about it in the first place? First of all, it's a little depressing because I had a beautiful head of hair at that point. (laughs) Um, So if we're going to go back that time, I got to get past that. You know, we always talk about data mining, just looking for patterns um, to be dangerous because you can discover random patterns Uh, and then you don't know if they're real. Uh, I do think the, in all honesty, the initial momentum results were largely observational. And that led Cliff to do a little more digging. It's one thing to stumble upon some pattern that seems to generate returns. It's another to understand why and publish about it. In 1993, Narasimhan Jigadish and Sheridan Tipman wrote a groundbreaking paper on momentum in the Journal of Finance. I give uh, Jagadish and Tipman full credit for being first, but I was very contemporaneous um, with them, just sitting alone in my dorm room as a grad student. The momentum that Cliff was looking at is often called one-year momentum, basically looking at returns over the past year, excluding the most recent month. His data started in 1963 and went through the 80s. And over that sample, the returns to this momentum strategy looked pretty good. But then Cliff got his hands on a new data set one he hadn't looked at yet. 
That data was like a prequel. It started in 1926 and ended in 1962. I actually got a little bit of a chill. This is the closest financial research comes to the high drama. The one-year momentum result was approximately as strong. I was very excited. Part of what makes a factor viable is that it needs to work over long periods of time. It also needs to be pervasive. And momentum seems to work in a bunch of different asset classes, like commodities, fixed income, equity indices, and currencies, just to name a few. And no offense to Cliff, but the thing that I always found odd with momentum is that it's such an easy strategy. You basically look at returns over the past 12 months. Things that did better than average, you like. And things that did worse than average, you don't like. Doesn't really seem like something that requires a fancy academic background to get right. But West Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, says it's deserving of hardcore study. And he uses the concept of gravity to make his point. We all know how gravity works. If I take an apple and I drop it, it'll go and hit the earth. Great. Anyone can do that. Anyone can implement that. But the issue is it takes someone like Newton or Einstein to actually understand, well, why does gravity actually work? So I think momentum might be the same thing, where if you just want to implement momentum, it's not that hard. You don't need a PhD to sort securities on their past performance. But where it gets difficult is trying to understand, well, why does momentum work? And, and that's where you, know, you need these research skills and the ability to think deeply about what seems simple, because we all know it works, but we may not know why it works. This brings us to one of the most important things you can ask of an investment strategy. Why does it work? And while there can be lots of possible explanations, they can generally be grouped into two categories, risk-based and behavioral. The risk-based camp says you get paid for investing in a factor because it's, well, risky. Take value as an example. Cheap companies are cheap for a reason. Those companies might be the first to go out of business when the economy suffers. So you'd expect, hey, you're taking a bigger risk you should get a bigger reward. But the behavioral camp says, no, cheap companies aren't riskier. It's just that we're humans, and as humans, we're not that good at knowing the right price of a cheap company. And there can be a bunch of reasons why. Like a company whose price has been beat up for a few years might just get neglected. People are talking about it less, they're less interested in it, sending its price lower than it should be. When it comes to value, both the risk and behavioral camps have pretty good explanations. But momentum is different. There aren't that many intuitive risk-based explanations for it. That means most people tend to favor the behavioral ones. Now, let's start with underreaction. Here's Cliff. When new news comes out, you do incorporate that new news, uh, but you move off your prior beliefs maybe slowly. The price will move. But if the market as a whole exhibits this tendency, uh, it will move less than the new information really warranted. It'll be, all right, we see it, but um, we're going to move part of the way. If that's the case, you get a, a simple momentum effect. Good news on average leads to price going up. On average, price doesn't go up enough. So on average, when you see price going up, it probably wasn't quite enough. This underreaction story is related to news. But investors can also underreact to changes in fundamentals. Some classic examples are earning surprises, analyst revisions to earnings. Um, that is a beautiful underreaction story. 
Now, I will tell you, Underreaction is my favorite story. Um, not my favorite, like uh, I find it most aesthetically pleasing. It's the one, <laughs> it's the one I think most likely to be true or, or contribute the most. But one of the other major explanations for momentum uh, embarrassingly has the opposite um, terminology, at least, but it's overreaction. Uh, many think of momentum as going too far, as people chasing price. There, you can build that into models, too, and show that if people overreact, that can lead to momentum. Another behavioral reason is related to the disposition effect, which is that people tend to dislike losses more than they enjoy gains. This is the, the pretty well-documented tendency. Individual investors do this. They are very willing to sell winners and hold on to losers. Um, and that is, a, call it a psychological bias. But it's kind of neat when you think about that, what, what that would lead to. If you are absolutely quick to sell winners. When good news comes out, they'll be selling pressure against it. Again, it was real news, so eventually it's going to get into the price. It's a way of, of, of slowing down that move. The people who react that way might actually create momentum profits because they're keeping the price from jumping all the way. Wes has another explanation for momentum, and that is reflexivity. So fundamental guy says, okay, fundamentals drive the price, right? If the fundamentals are doing better, eventually Mr. Market agrees with me and the price will move to what I say. But what if you invert that question and said, what if prices actually influence fundamentals? How might this work? Think about a company whose stock price has recently gone up a lot compared to its peers. Its cost of capital is probably now a lot lower. Now say it wants to acquire another company. Well, that's a bit easier with their newly inflated stock price. How about attracting talent? What kind of engineer who's probably not a finance expert, they just look at the stock price to assess how great, amazing this company is. I'll be like, yeah, I want to work there. Those options are probably going to be worth a lot. So maybe there's, there's ability to attract human capital just because you're fancy, you're hot, you're out there. If you think about it, reason outperformance is great PR. That can further raise a stock's price over time, allowing momentum investors to profit. We've talked about a few of the behavioral explanations for momentum, but there are a few risk-based ones, too. If you're an investor, which explanation should you prefer? There's no clear answer, but I'll tell you the good and bad parts of both. If something works because it's risk, your first best guess is it's going to work forever. It's compensation for bearing risk. There's no real reason it should go away. That's the good news. The bad news, and this is I apologize in advance for the obviousness of this, but if it's risk, then it's risky. Risk is something that hurts you, that you don't want to bear. If it's behavioral, you get precisely the opposite. It's not adding over time to the risk of your overall portfolio, and you expect to make money long term. That's wonderful. That's better than a risk premium, because uh, who the heck doesn't want money without fear? The problem, of course, uh, is it is more susceptible to going away. If something works because investors make errors, um, it can go away for two reasons. They can stop making those errors, or too many people can try to exploit those errors. I guess I'm rooting for uh, a behavioral premium that takes a long time to go away. Uh, 
luckily, that, that does appear so far to be the leading contender. And to be entirely clear, the world doesn't really give a darn what I root for. It's gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be what it's gonna be. Cliff raises a point about investors wising up to a factor and piling in. Which leads to a big question. If everyone knows about momentum, and if it's due to behavioral biases, you'd think it'd go away. Here's Wes's take. Why would we write books and like be super transparent about the exact nuts and bolts of the strategies we run? That seems insane, right? Because we know a dirty little secret. What we're doing is difficult to actually employ in practice. I say no pain, no gain. And in the Marines, they say extreme pain, extreme gain. It's probably worth mentioning that Wes was a U.S. Marine for four years before getting his Ph.D. He was also training for a 100-mile ultramarathon when we met him. He knows about pain. And momentum, even if it's just a behavioral mispricing, can still be painful. This might be a big reason why it's not getting arbitraged away. So there's a $20 bill on the ground, but there's a grizzly bear that's standing next to it. So clearly this is mispricing, right? Why would you have a $20 bill sitting on a freaking ground? But there's a grizzly bear staying over it. So, so sometimes in the marketplace, there's an open secret. There's a $20 bill on the ground. Go for it. There's a grizzly bear on top of it. And that grizzly bear might be career risk. It might be arbitrage risk. It may be frictional costs, whatever. Wes takes this metaphor so seriously that he actually has a taxidermied grizzly bear in his office. It's called the Grizz. And it was terrifying. Another thing keeping investors from facing off against the Grizz is that momentum is harder for most fundamental investors to get their heads around. I don't think it's as intuitive or, or feel good as like value. Like value makes sense. You get to buy cheap stuff. It's down. You're not the sucker, right? But who wants to look at a stock chart at its 52-week high and be like, oh, I want to buy that, right? <laughs> That's not intuitive. Like I don't want to be the bag holder. Even Cliff, a guy who's been managing momentum-oriented strategies for nearly three decades, agrees. A joke I made for probably about two years uh, to uh, one of my co-founders of AQR, John Liu. He probably wanted to kill me for making the same joke over and over again. I'd say, John, are you telling me we are buying more of the Japanese yen because its price is higher than last month? And John would just look at me deadpan and go, yes, that is what I'm telling you. And uh, I think um, part of it is, is, while I think there are good behavioral stories, for it. it. It it does not have the same intuitive buy-in uh, that, that value has. And like all factors, momentum can have some painful drawdowns. Momentum has, in an in industry parlance, a very anodyne way to put it, has, has a left tail, um, is negatively skewed, uh, which kind of rhymes with how you actually feel uh, at those periods. Um, and, and, and just to define that, uh, the world rarely follows a perfect normal distribution, something very close to the famous bell curve, where two standard deviation events are rare, and three are very rare, and four only happen in nightmares. Um, no, the real world tends to be somewhat fat-tailed, meaning big events happen more often. A portfolio of momentum stocks, particularly long-short, long winners, short losers, has 
undeniably had a big left tail. It has crashed, um, most notably in the spring of 2009, as the global financial crisis abruptly stopped and reversed. Um, no matter how much uh, you try to construct your portfolio well, uh, short, sharp reversals of strong trends, um, I, I don't think I need to belabor that that seems like the obvious time momentum's going to get hurt. But what should matter to investors isn't just that one factor can underperform. It's whether others can be there to pick up the slack. So let's go back to 2009. Uh, value, by the way, did well enough that a whole portfolio of both factors was not particularly distressed. One of the things that makes momentum so special is that it tends to work really well with value. When one's doing worse than normal, the other's doing better than normal. Statistically, value and momentum tend to be negatively correlated, which kind of makes sense. If you imagine buying stuff where good stuff is going on lately, uh, and another strategy is buying stuff in some distress that's reflected in the price. I don't think uh, most people require a giant intuitive leap to say, um, these appear to feel like different strategies. The momentum value correlation, it, it, call it minus 0.6 uh, and fairly reliable. That is a huge number, meaning if you're going to do both, they're both better than viewed alone. Uh, in fact, more and more over time, uh, I prefer uh, to think of value and momentum as a system. You might think given the diversification benefit in combining value and momentum, everybody would be doing it. But they're not. And Wes has a theory for why. Like people that do value are stuck on fundamentals, stuck on valuation. People that do momentum just look at prices and charts. But I like that because they're just structurally different worlds in the market, which means they also should have pooling benefits. But for anyone who's a value investor, they don't believe in the religion of price and trend and momentum because, you know, Ben Graham told them that was a bad idea. The, the great irony is they're the ones that could maximally benefit from the addition of momentum. But the problem is they've got to get over the behavioral issue of being so faith-based in, in one school of thought. Um, and, and that maybe you can't break that. It's tempting to say, okay, in this environment, I'm going to put all my eggs in the momentum basket. And in this other environment, I'm going all value. Wes says to think twice before giving up that diversification. The issue is I, I, I'm going for two birds in the bush as opposed to the one bird I know in my hand. Because the bird I have in my hand when I roughly take equal risk from value momentum is known structural diversification, Right. So I know I'm going to get that if I just stick to these dang things. The minute I start tilting them, like, ah, oh, let's just do more value and not that much momentum, I give up the known structural correlation benefit that I believe in strongly, and, and I get the potential benefit of maybe better expected return by, by tilting more to one versus the other. And yeah, you can backtest till you're blue in the face to show me that factor timing works, but you're kind of risking the one thing we know, or at least I believe more strongly in than factor timing, is the diversification benefits. A common knock on momentum is that it's expensive to trade. The way you get that strategy working, unfortunately, is it's gotta have turnover and it's gotta be rebounds, right? You always gotta be recycling into these high momentum names. And the problem with that is now you got tons of frictional costs. A lot of investors question whether momentum even works after all these costs. 
Well, the answer is yes. It doesn't work as well. Uh, t- 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 <laughs> nothing works as well after after costs, fees, and taxes. There, there, there. Those three are rarely positives. There are critics of it who point to its turnover uh, and say, "Look, uh, the profits may be wiped out." Uh, we think they go way too far. To prove his point, AQR published a paper called "Trading Costs," which reports live trading costs for running momentum strategies. But even more important for investors is it can get cheaper to trade momentum when you combine it with other factors. Uh, Again, particularly value and momentum. Often one is buying what the other is selling. And you know what the cheapest trade on earth is? Is the one you don't do. Um, So the point, I think, is even stronger in a a multi-factor world. So let's recap. Momentum is a source of returns found in many asset classes and over a long period of time. We can call it a factor because there are many economically intuitive explanations for it. These include underreaction to news, the disposition effect, and reflexivity effects. But its benefits don't come easy. Like any factor, momentum can have its periods of pain. But that might actually be a reason the momentum premium sticks around. We all know what works. Buy pain, you know, be disciplined, buy cheap, buy strong, you know, put it in a bank account, minimize fees, minimize taxes, and wake up 30 years from now. Great. The problem, though, is being able to stick with that, right? And so why education, we think, is so important is if I'm going to get you in something that I know has a high probability of working, I need to make sure that you yourself are defensed up so inevitably when there is the real pain, you don't look to me as like, hey, you're the PhD guy. Why is this not working? And, and so th- that's why the, the focus is on education to the end client, because we want to have education in order to make you more sustainable. We've got your back on that one, Wes. For listeners who want to learn more about Momentum, head over to aqr.com curious, where we've posted a few papers on today's episode. And if you want to keep this episode's momentum going, you can email us at curious at aqr.com. Next time, we'll talk about commodities, trends, and turtles. I think pork belly stopped trading in 2011. No. Which is kind of funny because I think it's the go-to like, of, of everybody. Like when you say commodities, they're like, yeah, you trade pork belly. <laughs> it's like not since 2011. <laughs> you stay curious, listeners, and watch out for the grizz. You have to fight a damn grizzly bear, right? You get scratches on your back, right? You get, like, eaten by this thing. Maybe time for one more. Well, one thing we didn't do, I never actually gave you any of the behavioral explanations for momentum. Somehow we veered. um, uh, So so, It would be great to get. Yeah, I don't need to do much on this, but go. Yeah. Ask me. Can you give us one or a few behavioral stories behind why momentum might exist? Uh, no. <laughs> I was really, I was hoping you were going to Savage. Just, <laughs> savage. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. 
The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, AQR Capital, LLC, all rights reserved.